Yvette Brown from Awkwardness and Grace. I'm a white mom raising two black boys, and if you feel squeamish talking about race, you're not alone. Join me, parents, and professionals as we have conversations about race and the awkwardness and grace of it all. Every one of us has a unique story to tell. For my guest today, the story she was to uphold as a child shaped her into finding her personal truth, embracing her biraciality, and celebrating her roots. Good morning, everyone. Today, I have Nikki. She is a biracial mom with two teenage boys and one elementary school age girl which, oh my goodness, I have two boys, that's enough. Uh, Although, your girl, she's pretty precious. Welcome to Awkwardness and Grace. Thank you. I'm very excited to speak with you, Yvette. I love your podcast. Thank you. As a mom, what keeps you awake at night? I think making sure that I've done whatever I can in the one day that we all have at a time to just do what I can to support my kids or my spouse, myself. I'm working on that the most, I think. But yeah, just really making sure that I'm either being aware and proactive when I need to be and stepping back and listening, watching them be their independent selves. I think I met that as a parent in that crossroad and for myself, stepping back into my profession in a more active way after really being a parent first for so long. (laughs) Yes. Oh boy. I do know that. That sounds pretty great. Great place to be in life. You are a biracial woman and I'm just curious, how did your mother talk to you about race and your heritage when you were growing up? When I was little, we really did not speak at all about race. I knew I didn't fit, I guess, the TV norm where I we definitely watched shows. And I knew that my parents' set did not match the set represented on TV that my family looked different from that. But I did live on a block where there were many biracial households. So I actually in and this was the you know mid to late 70s, early 80s, most of my friends had mixed matched parents. There were Asian and white and I was the only black and white, but I didn't really know that there were specific ethnic or race labels for any of that. We just kind of all hung out together until my mom divorced and remarried, and her second husband is Chinese, and he adopted me and the sister below me, and we changed Our last names were changed to a Chinese last name. And so at that point, when we were told to tell people that our adopted stepdad was our dad 
and that we were half Chinese, that's when much more awkwardness, discomfort, and shame. So yeah, I definitely kind of kept up their their agreed upon story, which was really my mom's intention to protect us from what she thought would be a racist setting in this private school that we attended from kindergarten through eighth grade. I don't know that there were really, to my knowledge, other black and white biracial people at my school. The half Asian, half white biraciality was much more the norm. Being raised in a half Chinese um, household, many of our family friends, my aunties and uncles, my grandparents are Chinese, but we're also Asian in background. But yeah, anyway, we really did not speak about it in terms of what racism meant necessarily for Black people. My dad definitely spoke about some of the racism or discrimination that he faced being Chinese and being an immigrant and growing up in the America where you really, people heavily identify with what it looked like to be American how you speak to sound to be you know respected as a well-educated american you just said you're biracial you're african american and white but when your mother remarried you said that you were raised as white chinese as a child i can see that causing some confusion would you um I, I'm just trying to unpack this a little bit here. How did that affect you? It, again, just became more of the anxiety kind of around always having to explain how my family worked to people without giving away the secret, you know, because I knew. I remember my biological father didn't have any question around my biracial identity. But having to uphold this lie was very uncomfortable and awkward, which, you know, my mom and my dad totally acknowledge and understand how difficult that was for us back then. And I really do understand and respect that they really thought that that was the safest, best choice that they could make as parents at that time for me and the sister that was born right after me who also is half black, half white. Uh, And she presents African-American or biracial um, black. So, you know, for me, since I look pretty much white, I don't have any necessarily like black phenotype characteristics. Most people didn't really question my biraciality until they met my sister who does look mixed Black or Latinx, kind of, you know, the unidentified biracial kid who is not obviously half Asian. For me, I also never really was uncomfortable in my own body or self, but it would be uncomfortable going into new situations, again, where we have to explain how our family worked. The most uncomfortable places would be when I would check out at the grocery store and my driver's license had my Chinese last name on there. I don't look Chinese. Yeah, the checkout folks would always ask, how does that work? 
how, how are you? <laughs> What's going on here? And I just would immediately get very defensive, but I could feel it in my body, just kind of like, a, oh, I don't want to have to explain this to you. But yeah. And, and I guess too, I, I do remember just the awkwardness sometimes of my dad who loves to go to restaurants and we would go out to lunch occasionally together. And I don't look like his biological daughter. So that was uncomfortable because as a 16, 17 year old young woman, it was awkward where it would felt like I was being looked at like I was his inappropriately young girlfriend, which I you really have to force your mind to not let that overwhelm too much because I know the truth and he knows the truth and that's all that matters ultimately, right? And that he was doing a kind thing and I enjoy going out to lunch with my dad, right? So that's more on the need, uh, like obsession with unpacking race or figuring out your race in America. I don't know what it's like in other places. I just know here people are always trying to like figure out, well, you look like this person, you look like that one, you don't look like anyone. How do you fit? <laughs> yeah, no, I was thinking about the hierarchy of what is acceptable, what is the norm? What is the other? Where do you fit in that equation? And, you know, I understand how your parents wanted to protect you. I mean, I think I was saying earlier, my my mother's generation, it was your social persona was almost equally as important as your survival, especially since it was people coming to America, having to assimilate constantly, push their culture aside and kind of hide behind closed doors to cultivate it and to still cherish it, you know, and that is definitely changing over time. But I do know that my mother's generation and probably your mother's generation that, hey, the outward appearance of how we are presented as a family is a survival mechanism to be, you know, stay within the tribe and not be rejected and to belong. Even though I have to say the effort, effort to to easily be accepted, I think, as strictly white family, no matter your socioeconomic level might be. And both of my parents have always been extremely hardworking. They both had to do more than perhaps, you know, a, a white male at, during their time and generation to just get into college, to pay for college for my mom as a woman. Same for my dad. They both are avid readers. Just school was everything for them. They really pushed that for all four of us. Because I don't think I mentioned the sister right below me. She and I are both half black. And then we have two younger sisters that are from my mom's second marriage that are half Chinese, half white. Uh, but we were all raised together because we didn't go between two households. We all fully consider each other as full sisters. So just the level of pressure of how you dressed your hair. I mean, my hair, that was something too. And for my my other sister, we have curly, frizzy hair. My mom had no idea what to do once we hit puberty with the hair. I I don't even think I knew what to do with my hair until my mid twenties and moved to the East coast where humidity really helped me out. (laughs) 
did your mother celebrate and embrace your Black heritage? No. So other than through music, because she and my dad both have always loved Black musical artists and Motown and funk and disco and R&B. That component was in our household. But other than that, like that was a comfortable way of bringing Black culture into our house versus the aversion to talking about Malcolm X or Angela Davis, discussing Black Panther culture. But yeah, we did not participate in any way in like Black History Month awareness or education. And I don't even remember our school really doing it. I only remember KQED. Thank goodness for public (laughs) broadcast television. But KQED was my one way of actually learning about um, and embracing Black people and Black culture. LeVar Burton in Reading Rainbow was like huge for me. And also there was a show that I think was made, it had to be in the 70s, so 70s, uh, called Getting to Know Me. It was a Black family they were having to confront in terms of racism and also seeing just the beauty of the love that was so deeply intact within their Black family and across generations with their grandma, Mama Violet. It reminds me now, my daughter is obsessed. We are watching um, Blackish. I have seen an episode or two of Mixedish, which definitely speaks for sure to me. Those were the outlets to norm and love Black people, Black culture in the way that I could find it and see it versus the super scary way those movies depicting the KKK, whipping Black people, burning crosses. And that stuff is absolutely terrorizing and terrifying. And I did see that in fourth grade and asked my mom, you know, who those hooded, scary men were and why were they hurting this Black man. And she told me very briefly who the KKK was and that, you know, it wasn't really a problem now. Like, I had no idea until fourth grade, seeing those commercials, that anything like that happened to Black people. And then knowing that my dad, calling my biological father, I thought, did that happen to him? Would that happen to him? Would it happen to me? because I am part Black. And if they find out that I am part Black, these hooded men are going to come and take me from my house and do these things to me or my sister. And funny enough, I, I never thought about how dangerous that reality was for my Black friends. I mean, they asked me if I was biracial, and we would talk about that very briefly. But Other than one friend did mention in Berkeley, you know, that her grandmother had seen a cross burned in her yard way back in the day. I don't know. It wasn't the kind of conversations that I think our kids are having in school right now or that they have around the dinner table. We never participated in a Dr. King march, which I do really love getting to step into the, those spaces where I just get to have a little plug into community. And I do have some good friends now who I can just speak with, have kind of a shared conversation of, as you would say, awkwardness and grace. I admire your deep desire to claim your heritage and 
to have the courage to ask your mom about the hushed and horrific black history you saw on TV. As adults, I think we forget how children take taboo information and go to the furthest place in their imagination. It reinforces the importance of talking to your kids about race. As for your younger sisters, did they understand your biracial experience? I don't think I mentioned, like, my parents decided to tell the younger sisters the truth when I was a senior in high school. And the sister right below me was a freshman, I believe. And then the two youngers were, like, second and third grade. And that was really shocking and devastating that we weren't all from the same father. My younger sisters thought that I was going to leave and go find my real family, not getting that I considered the family that I grew up with my real family, but too, just the need to want to know more and have some sort of understanding or perspective from my biological father's side. Listening to this, when I think of your sisters not realizing that you don't look like them. And to be so astounded when this discussion and when you're in 12th grade is finally happening, I can see it being really devastating for everyone. The pain of getting there to come forward and saying that and how excruciating that must be and to reveal it and that process to me, though, seems also very healing. You know, okay, I've lived with this a long time. I know my sisters are devastated. They have this fear. I'm not going to love and accept them anymore. And I'm going to reject them to how can we heal from this? You know, how can we grow from this? What did you do to start that healing process? I mean, you, you just came clean and just said, this needs to be dealt with. Then how did you proceed from there? For me... At that point, I said to my mom, when I go to college, I am going to tell people that I am half black, half white, and that my adopted Chinese dad is the dad that raised me. He's the dad I call dad. That's my reality and truth in a complicated nutshell. But thankfully, I actually went to college uh, here in my hometown. And so I would come back often and take my little sisters out. I'd take them to the movies or still hang out with them all the time. And we're still, you know, very close now. You know, I've read through quite a few memoirs recently of um, people who are biracial and one in particular when I was white um, by Sarah Valentine and just this whole, like these lies and how her mother did not tell Sarah that she was half black until she was 27. So at least I always had the truth in my mind. I always had memories of my biological um, parent and, you know, loving what he looked like and not thinking anything was wrong with that. But it was more having to deal with the, the lying and that it was okay to be half Chinese, but not okay to be half black and acknowledging that there is a privilege in that. Even though there was a whole lot of awkwardness in raising me uh, and my sisters in our little, we used to joke and be like, we're a mini model UN because we really do have all of these different racial, ethnic, cultural backgrounds. 
that piece at this point to me is a real sense of unique pride. I have been able to more openly embrace the the blackness, you know, and the beauty of that and the joy of that, along with the reality that confronts people who present black and, and face real violence and terror in the most everyday ways, not just when confronting law enforcement or white supremacists. I mean, to me, I have a very strong sense of family, no matter the difficult conversations around race that we've had. My husband has been extremely supportive and has had to hear a lot as I have grown, learned, been angry, really angry, and worked through all of the triggers and things that particularly during these past four or five years where people are seeing white supremacy again in such a public space. You've expressed these range of emotions that you've had to process coming to terms with loving and accepting your whole self. Did you ever not accept yourself? I always accepted myself. I always actually was very proud of being half black, even when it had to be a secret. In high school too, a friend of mine who is black, she for sure, the minute they see my younger sister, always like, um, what's up? You are definitely half black or a part, like what's, what's going on? And so it was always great actually to have those friends who teach me and exposed me to the racism that was happening in our high school that I wasn't experiencing in the same obvious way, but I could see it and realize, oh, or actually now that we call them microaggressions, uh, because it wasn't necessarily only to Black people, but also there was one particular teacher who would say things that were really ignorant about uh, Asian or uh, Chinese in particular. And I joined the African American club, you know, in high school, which was great. And it was great too that it was a space where black students joined and white allies or biracial presenting people could join. And that was the first time too that I had heard of and sang the black national anthem. And that was really awesome that my high school actually did do that and acknowledge that for Black History Month. That's great that they have that support system. One of those things about going to high school is that you're pulling away from your parents, you're finding your own personal identity. And, you know, I feel like as a teen, you need to explore, disrupt, embrace, just go through this whole process. And I mean, Logan's, one of Logan's criteria of going to a high school is that they have a Black student union or club or group, support group, not even support, just like affinity group. And those are great. When I think of how your parents talk, didn't talk about race, how do you talk to your kids about race compared to how do your parents talk to you? What are the conversations in your home compared to the conversations your parents had with you? I'll say initially, I think mine were coming from a place of reaction. And I think now for our children's generation, it's that conversation of what does that mean we've all upheld and how does that connect with colonialism, white supremacy? 
and the these will be the conversations that our kids carry, right? And kind of figure out what to do with with the information we have today that our parents didn't have, our grandparents didn't have. So my oldest child, yeah, I love musicals, and I showed him the sound of music. And he saw the, you know, the Nazi symbols and these bad guys that to, you know, a four and a five-year-old, understandably, that's just like a, a make-believe bad guy. He didn't really understand what the Nazis did, what really happened to the Jewish population um, or through the concentration camps. There was a point where he thought that these bad people were bad, kind of like Darth Vader and totally understandably just thought of them as like pretend bad people. Thankfully, one of our local museums had an artist installment. He, he made all of these drawings depicting the horrors of what he saw before he left, I think maybe Poland and the Holocaust. And my son finally kind of could start to see like, oh, grandmas and grandpas and babies. I mean, it's kind of like showing your child the middle passage, which is just brutal, right? You don't want to ever have to make your kids sad when they don't necessarily have to be, but it's so important. Start having those conversations. That kind of was the beginning conversation. And then third grade, they had to write biographies and he chose Thomas Jefferson. We started reading one of the books that he brought home from his elementary school's library. And it was it was a nice book. It did mention that he owned slaves. Again, it was very difficult for him to totally understand what that even meant. I just started bringing home books that I could find. And I started being very clear about his ancestral roots to him and all three of my kids, but my boys were old enough where I said, I um, black and white, you have a black grandparent that you may not know personally right now, but your ancestors were brought here in chains. You need to know and understand the horrors of this. Sometimes I, I think I probably was so angry or out of fear that they were somehow going to become racist themselves. And I'm so glad that I got to step into our race equity inclusion group because I think it also started plugging me in with other people within our parent community and the, the books that they were reading, the articles, and really starting my own journey, realizing like I need to know for myself this history. And to have the the facts to explain the systems of racism beyond it being these really horrific images, but to really understand why do we only have a few Black people living in our neighborhood? And those were conversations that I had with them. I have had conversations with them about how easy it is for them to walk around the neighborhood with their hoods up as you know they present white. And what does that mean for you when you're hanging out with my oldest? He goes to a very diverse high school and he is the one white kid among his friends who are all people of color. And what privilege does he have? What does that mean? Trying to remind myself too, they're all still children and 
that I'm still learning in my mid 40s and that it's always a journey. Any family vacations that we've taken, we will go to indigenous spaces and learn, particularly across the Hawaiian Islands on the East Coast, going to visit different plantations and spaces. We did go to Monticello and I'm so thankful. I've been there a couple of times. The conversation really has changed in the past two decades there. Um, It is full frontal. I'm curious. I cringe at going to a plantation. I feel like it would just really stir some things up in me and make me very angry. But I also know it's important to acknowledge history. So when you went there several decades ago, are you talking about the tour and the explanation and how that's changed? So, yes. So I went with a good friend of mine and we decided to take a a trip through the South. One of our first stops was Monticello. And this was maybe like 2001 timeframe. That time, the tour really just focused on the oddities of Thomas Jefferson as a scientist, all of his like little inventions. And I just don't remember any mention of Sally Hemings like being named. You saw the slave quarters. Even then, it was very limited, really glossing over what happened there. So we went this 2018 to Monticello. And again, we visited some of these places because there was the obsession with the musical Hamilton. So with Hamilton, it was such a big obsession. It was also, I think, important to really reevaluate the details of Washington and Jefferson at Monticello, which so over 20 years, this huge visitor center was erected. You can go in and watch a video on Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's life. And as the African-American Museum of Culture and History labeled it, I think it's paradox of freedom. When you go down into the basement level of that museum, the video really presented the realities of the 600 plus enslaved people that lived on that plantation, the Hemings family, how young she was, that history was full frontal. There was such a depth of real conversation. At the very end of the tour, uh, you walk out to this open grass area where they naturalize citizens every year on the 4th of July. Our tour guide was very wise to mention how diverse the current board was and making it a place where immigrants were being naturalized and to honor the importance and the reality of this country being built and formed by immigrants. But there is a lot of truth out there when you look for it, right? And we did see auction blocks and we did go to the port in Cambridge, Maryland, uh, where my ancestors potentially were brought you know, in on boats, brought in chains. When I hear the story, it gives me a sense of hope. My question is, what gives you a sense of hope? I think that that trip was huge for me. The African-American Museum of History and Culture, that was like life-changing. Going down into the basement level, which represents being in the boat, the middle passage, the heart of darkness, and then rising up 
through our learning about the truth of enslavement and kidnapping. At the same time, they also thread in all of these heroes and sheroes um, that I had never heard of. And then the last half hour of my time in that museum, and I spent the whole day, I rushed to the top floor to see Queen Latifah (laughs) and like to get to just bring in current hip hop, rap culture, Black Panthers, just the the modern stuff, right? Oprah, Obama. Great. I'm very inspired hearing this. I, you know, I haven't explored the East Coast that much. Yeah, it just I'm thankful that these museums are out there that this information is accessible online. And it's not that hard. When you start looking and researching and reading, you're automatically connected to some other book or article or movie or podcast that you can listen to and learn from. I learned a lot from other friends and parents and podcasts. I think Layla Saad is just incredible. Her podcast, I just think I've been exposed to so many different important change makers, you know, uh, uh, women who are doing some phenomenal things. And that gives me a lot of hope, just the conversations. Or sitting at the table a couple of weeks ago, my kids forget having some sort of conversational around like the dark parts of history or who had a really hard time or something. And I was like, oh, well, even though you're kind of debating maybe who had it worse, I'm glad you know. very proud that you're here having these conversations. So yeah, we talk a lot. And, you know, my husband has participated and stepped into it and some family members as well. I think too, it became very real for my younger sisters just because of the racism, you know, just serious discrimination and the real physical harm towards Chinese people because of COVID. I think has pushed them to really do more learning around just their biraciality and what what it means to be half Chinese here. Yeah, when it becomes personal. Mhm. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because whites are the most dominant in our society. It doesn't really it's not personal for them. So they do tend to not push themselves as hard. But I do see that there's a huge difference, that there's this generational change between the conversations, the uh, shame, the experience between your parents and you and you and your kids and you being proactive and honest and real with them. It's, It's like a liberating experience for them as you're liberating yourself from your upbringing. And I I think too, also recognizing within myself, having to do a lot of work to recognize when I'm triggered, what other people are saying, which is really often said out of total ignorance. I think during the years of Trump in office, it was daily, the anger and sadness, just hearing people say things that were just really not well-researched or people making these broad generalizations some that would offend me as a biracial person, some as a woman, and how that was so emotionally exhausting. And I I don't think in my mind, it's not over now. I I think right now, it's really important to continue to push and, and have these conversations and not just think, oh, well, 
where we have someone who is far more empathetic um, in the White House. But most of us all still need to work on our blind spots and within ourselves too, to know, like, sometimes I might flip out about somebody's ignorance. And then it's also mine as well. Like, what do I need to learn more about? Or why am I freaking out? Yeah, but at least you see it and you examine it. You're willing to step back and say, okay, why am I being triggered by this? Why am I reacting? Yeah. Because then you realize too, that you're giving so much of your emotional self to other people when they don't get it. I have realized I can say as much as I want to, or feel I need to, I guess, and be at peace with that. Ultimately, you have to do what you can do. You're you're only in charge of yourself, your own mind, and your own learning. You may make a mistake doing it, but it's important to try or to talk to people and get to understand, oh, well, what made you draw that conclusion? (laughs) How did you, how did you come to that idea? Yeah, you know, and figuring out a way to say it too to open conversation because many people right now there is a lot of judgy language and how could you think that or why do you feel or what's wrong with you and and that type of language just immediately shuts down conversation. Yeah, you know, approaching it pretty genuinely curious. You know, why do you think that way instead of attacking because they're going to just they're going to respond to the attack. Exactly. I'm open to hearing how you're seeing life and um, sharing information as long as I feel like that person is open to hearing about my perspective as well and bringing that, you know, together into it's fun. I really thought of the United States as a melting pot growing up. I do feel like some of that was seen and shown again with the uh, Democratic National Convention, some of those videos that Biden was putting out and just took it in because I think it's just important that Americans really do remind themselves that it is a mixed, diverse, racially, religiously, culturally. It is so diverse. Naming it and talking about how it's diverse, how it's different, what those differences are, is the work that we still need to do. And to really understand that difference is a a good thing. Well, I have to say this has been an amazing conversation. And I just want to thank you. Thank you for sharing and opening up your heart for this podcast. Thank you, Yvette. I love your podcast. I learn all the time listening from this podcast and listening to it. And yeah, I thank you for really creating this space for all those who have been on your show thus far and for this space for me, an amazing art teacher, artist, creator, woman. So thank you, Yvette. You always keep us moving ahead and pushing and holding us accountable and at the same time, creating a very safe space to do that. So I thank you. My pleasure. Absolutely. Well, Nikki, have an amazing day. Thank you so much again. Nikki entered her journey because it was personal. Her Chinese and white American younger sisters also came to understand racism when COVID-19 became the Chinese virus. It was personal. What makes racism personal for you? Is it a book you read? A movie you saw? 
something your child said? Or did you catch yourself having a racial stereotypical thought? If it is not personal, then it is worth digging deeper and exploring why you are free to live without being affected by racism. What experience can push you into taking action to abolish it? It could be within your sphere of life, reading books to your kids about positive characters that are not white, or attending some workshops on how to be an anti-racist. The possibilities are endless. It just takes you.